Hi, this is Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii, a podcast that discusses current events, literature, and technology. I'm joined here with my co-host, Gabrielle Roberts. So, what exactly is our topic of discussion for today? Well, today we're going to be talking about hijacking microbes, specifically fungi. Uh, the reason why we decided to talk about this at first was sparked by the book The Genius Plague by David Walton. The premise of the book is a hijacking fungus in humans, where it completely takes control of the human mind. Right, and just to clarify for our listeners, a hijacking fungus is a fungus that will affect the neurological systems of the organisms that it's infecting. This is basically, this fungus is being able to conduct a sort of mind control on these organisms. Right, and we didn't know if this was science fiction or reality. So we decided to contact a specialist on this. We'll be speaking with Harvard researcher Carolyn Elia, who specializes in the study of hijacking fungi. She started her research in Berkeley as a doctorate student and now works in the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. All right, so now we're going to get right into that interview. Yes, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast and spending the time to talk to us. All right, so our first question is, what is known about D. melangaster's gravitaxis response, or the climbing upwards at the neurological level? Well, so we, the antennae have been implicated in sensing gravitaxis, or sorry, sensing gravity, I should say, Um, but there is a little bit of controversy out there whether or not that's of the whole story. Um, so, yeah. Right now, it's uh, the Johnson's organ has been thought to be the main uh, sensor of gravity, but whether or not that's actually the complete tale is still sort of unclear. Um, there are various types of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that change the behaviors of a host. In terms of evolution, is this a fairly new development in microbes? Or have they always been around? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, yeah, so I didn't quite hear the beginning of that, but I think what you asked was there are a variety of different microbes that can change the behavior of animals. Mm-hmm. And is this something new or is this something old? Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, well, this seems to be, at least in the case of Enzymatra, pretty ancient uh, association between the uh, microbe and its animal host. Um, it's <clears throat> a super specific uh, response that its mother has figured out how to elicit in flies, which uh, suggests that it's taken a, you know, a long time to stumble upon it. Um, and there have been a variety of different uh, organisms that have evolved to manipulate the behavior of animals in a convergent manner. So uh, I think that a lot of these are probably old relationships. We live on this planet that's absolutely covered with bacteria and fungi and other microbes that we can't see. And animals have had to evolve in the context of being able to deal 
with these microbes. And so this relationship between these multiple microbes is super old. And I think a lot of these uh, manipulative relationships are as well. So have these microbes been biologically successful? And should we expect more of them in the future? What do you mean by biologically successful? I guess, like, are they increasing in number now? Like, are there more species that are coming to light now? Or have they been, like, declining? So, I mean, in terms of the number of species, there are certainly more that we're learning about, but whether that, I don't think that's a fact, uh, a matter of, you know, more of them coming into existence. I think that's just a matter of us having explored more thoroughly what's out there. Um, and in terms of whether or not there might be more in the future, and there's a pretty uh, depressing and uh, scary decline of insects in the world uh, right now that's been going on for several decades now that's recently come to light. And since a lot of these uh, microbes, especially fungi, target insects, one might imagine that they too are going to be you know, wiped out as we're losing a bunch of different insect species. Does climate change affect the population of these hijacking fungus populations? Almost certainly. Uh, at least the fungus that I, um, I'm most familiar with, the Gymophthora, has very specific uh, temperature preferences. It prefers a cooler environment, and if you have actually you know, tried to do experiments in the lab where I've suggested flies to, um, that have been infected with Gymophthora to higher temperatures for the purpose of you know, trying to use these thermogenetic reagents, the fungus does not like that at all. It basically just stops growing. Um, so one can imagine, you know, that there was a substantial change in the Earth's temperature that, you know, the fungus wouldn't be able to catch up very well. Or, I mean, maybe there are some uh, some strains out there that are more thermal tolerant than the ones that I work with. But um, fungi seems, at least uh, entomophthora seems like it wouldn't do too, too well in a, in a warming world. So what would be the impact of this decline of the hijacking fungus population? Uh, well, you can imagine um, in the case, again, of Entomopo, which is the, the fungus that I'm, I think, most about, um, is that I think of it as sort of a population control mechanism. So it's kind of a crappy pathogen in a way because it requires a lot of things to go right. In order for it to spread, it needs to be in the right place at the right time, amongst the right kind of host. You can imagine that if you know the fungus is no longer able to play that sort of role in keeping down populations of flies, then you could have an explosion of fly populations. So that also depended on the flies actually being able to adapt to the warming temperatures as well. Um, is... So I don't think that's necessarily going to be true, but... There are certainly some species of flies that do better at warmer temperatures, so maybe those guys could come in um, and fill the, the gap where other flies have left. Is this fungus a danger to insect populations, or is it, like, as you were kind of saying, like just a natural limiting factor? I don't think it's a danger. I mean, okay, so it's a danger to populations in the sense that, yes, it impacts them pretty, or it could impact them pretty substantially. But on like the, the species level, uh, you know, I think entomopter and flies have been sort of in this, uh, you know, battle for a really long time, and it's just part of the natural cycling of 
this live population at this point. Um, we've seen Entomophora, I mean, it's something that not a lot of people have really studied, and so we don't really know, you know, precisely where you can find it and what it's hosted at best, but from just anecdotal, um, well, not just well, people, you know, contacted me and said, oh, I found Entomophora here, I found Entomophora there. It seems like it's just pretty, you know, prevalent wherever you can find flies to find Entomophora. So I sort of think of it as this natural balance between these two uh, species. So what is known about how the emu sky hijacks the system? Specifically, are there likely transcriptional factors used? So that's what we're trying to figure out now. The fungus doesn't have a nervous system, and we know that nervous systems coordinate and control behavioral outputs in animals. So how does the fungus actually you know, get into the nervous system and change the way that it's acting in order to get these behaviors to happen? And that's actually what I'm um, studying in my research right now. And so I'm really focusing specifically on one of these behaviors just to try and narrow the field down. Um, and there's a variety of things that happen at the end of the fly's life, right? It climbs up and then it sticks out its proboscis and it sticks its wings up. And I'm really interested in understanding how um, the fly is being told to go up. How is that particular behavior being caused by the fungus. And right now, we don't know, but we have some ideas. So you asked about gravitas at the beginning of the podcast, and that was sort of the first uh, hypothesis I had going in, was that, okay, flies have this innate preference to move against gravity, and maybe the fungus is somehow figuring out how to tap into that and make the flies go up, even though they're in a situation when they normally wouldn't want to go up. And so that's sort of a hypothesis that... Um, I'm following up on and just trying to see where um, I'm running a screen right now to try and identify different components in the fly that are required in order for the day to happen. And so I'm sort of just following wherever those results lead me right now. So how much is really known about behavior altering microbes? Is this like a new field or has this been researched for a long time? Like mechanistically, uh, we don't know too much, I guess, about behavior manipulating microbes as a whole. There's a lot of really cool examples out there, and we know sort of phenomenologically, you know, what the manipulations will look like, but we, in most cases, have a very poor understanding of how these manipulations are actually, you know, being executed. Um, there are a few examples where we do understand um, uh, the mechanism in a little bit more detail. So, for example, there's a... a virus that infects caterpillars and it causes them to do this climbing up behavior and the basis of that behavior has been found to be basically blocking uh, the production of uh, a hormone, I believe, that's leading uh, the gene that is necessary in order for that behavior to happen has been uh, determined in the virus case. But in a lot of other systems, we just really don't understand. Uh, one of the most uh, common things that people ask me about is usually toxoplasma gondii, and in that case, you know, the behavior is very well characterized that mice infected with toxoplasma gondii uh, specifically lose their fear of cat odors, but that's still being worked out how exactly that comes to be. So, short answer, we don't really know huh. a whole lot, but we're all, very, I think everyone who's, you know, read about this stuff is interested in figuring it out. 
So what influenced you to study fungal pathogens? Generally, I was interested in this question of how do you, how do microbes change the behavior of animals, which are, you know, just on a completely different size scale and have much more, um, you know, specialized uh, tissues and nervous systems, which are things that are not found in these uh, single-celled organisms, and came at this um, as a graduate student initially starting to look at um, the gut microbiota as a potential way to uh, study behavior manipulation of microbes in a lab-tractable uh, organism. So we're studying the gut microbes in fruit flies, and fruit flies have this amazing toolkit um, where you can basically turn on and off genes at will, and you can manipulate specific cell types in very precise ways. And so it seemed like a really appealing system. And sort of while I was working on that project, um, I was doing an experiment that necessitated I collect some wild fruit flies. And so uh, to collect wild, quote-unquote, fruit flies, I went to my backyard um, in Berkeley, California, and I went to collect fruit flies there. And while I was doing this experiment, I noticed that some of the flies that I was collecting were dying from this fungal infection, and I had actually heard about the chelalabnate. I knew that this fungus caused a really robust change in behavior, and that's sort of exactly what I was looking for um, in order to try and, you know, have a, a system that I could use to dissect the molecular underpinnings of behavior manipulation. Um, and so when I saw this, I decided that was what I was going to work on, and I brought it into the lab, and yeah, that's where I'm, that's where I'm now. So what makes the fungi that hijack fruit flies so unique from other types of brain-modifying fungi? I don't know if they are unique. Um, so I guess one of the things that strikes me most about fungi that infect other insects um, is that a lot of these fungi make their, their hosts climb up high. Um, and presumably that's to get the what will soon be a dead animal, you know, high up so that it can sprinkle spores down um, and hit a wider uh, area where a potential host might be lurking. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, I think the, the commonality there is actually more exciting than the differences between these different um, pathogens. And um, I'm really curious to see if, you know, there is sort of a common mechanism, some really deeply conserved uh, element of uh, insect nervous circuitry that is so there was a fictional book called The Genius Plague by David Walton about a fungi that alters human nervous systems. Is there currently okay. any fungi that affect larger organisms or do they just impact small organisms like insects? We could certainly be infected by uh, fungal pathogens, but... Um, I have yet to hear of one that actually, you know, causes gross behavior manipulations in the style of, uh, you know, Enzymopsera or Ophiosaurus or something of that nature. Fungi don't do particularly well um, against uh, warmer climate. Yeah. And also a lot of the smaller, in the, the small insects that, or the small animals sorry, that we're talking about um, are, are like the insects and insects lack adaptive branch of um, their immune of the immune system and so that means that um, if they see you know a pathogen unlike us they don't necessarily store a memory of that um, insult so that they can later recognize it and defend more um, 
efficiently against it next time. Um, and so insects have sort of a yeah, are less less good at battling particular pathogens. Um, and also insects rely on the environment to provide energy that ultimately dictates what their body temperature is. And so an insect, uh, you know, if a fungus can grow at room temperature, that's where the insect is as well. And so the fungus doesn't necessarily have to, you know, uh, deal with any thermal stress mm -hmm. when it's trying to infect an insect because it's at basically the same temperature that it would be um, otherwise. Whereas with, you know, larger animals and mammals, for example, um, you know, we do have, we're warm-blooded and we control our body temperatures so that they are sitting above room temperature and that can be hard for, um, you know, fungus to tolerate. So, yeah, no-known fungal pathogens that can change uh, the behavior of large animals in many ways and there's really no reason to suspect why uh, that, you know, this would be the case. So you mentioned before the sort of, like, similarities between the different types of hijacking fungus. So are each of these species have any similarities, or are they very different? The fungal species, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, between each species infecting, like, different types of insects, are they, like, incredibly different, or are, there, are they sort of similar? So they are incredibly different in terms of evolutionary time. They're very distant from one another, and they have, you know, very different places where they might live. But I think there might be some unifying element that could potentially explain, you know, why they all seem to stumble on this, this same trick of making their host climb up. Um, so it could be that they all do this in different ways because... It's so, you know, maybe there's such pressure on um, each of these fungi to, to spread, and that really the best way to spread is to get your, your host to go up, um, that they're compelled to do this. Um, or it could be that there is a really, you know, sort of easy uh, button to press, so to speak, that's common to a variety of insects. And so all of these fungi, though they are, you know, evolutionarily, uh, quite distant from each other, they've all sort of figured it out because it's a pretty simple solution. Okay. And so could these neurological alterating um, fungi be harnessed for good, possibly with gene editing, perhaps something in human beings? There's been a long history in the field of uh, insect pathogens to try and use pathogens as natural pesticide to kill specific kinds of insects rather than just blanket coating crops with some chemicals that could be potentially bad for all kinds of life. Um, so in that sense, that could be a potential use. Um, the way I like to think about, I guess, under like how it would benefit us to understand what um, these uh, microbes are actually doing in order to change behavior is that there might be some interesting chemical that um, these different kinds of fungi or multiple chemicals are producing um, in order to change the way that neurons are acting. And so maybe if we could figure out what these chemicals are as we're trying to understand how they're changing the behavior of insects, maybe these will also have, um, you know, interesting and useful effects on other kinds of brains because animal brains all sort of follow the same underlying logic. Um, we use um, the same neurotransmitters and we have 
sort of similar strategies for a variety of, of uh, different uh, pathways. Um, so we could imagine, you know, maybe some chemical that, I don't know what it could potentially do, but maybe um, makes the, the fly calmer to get it to do some particular thing. Um, could also be used in humans as some sort of uh, mental therapeutic. What are the big mysteries that still, like, are existing, con- like, about these fungi? Like, what are still things that we can't understand or don't know yet? When you say these fungi, I mean, we don't even understand all of the species that are out there. We estimate that we only have uncovered a fraction of what's actually existing in the world. So, first of all, we don't even know sort of what we're dealing with. And then within the species that we, you know, have recognized and uh, are aware of, there's so much that we don't know. So it depends on sort of what species you're talking about. There are some species for which we've learned a lot, like baker yeast, for example, which has been studied for a very long time in the lab um, and is particularly amenable to growing, you know, in lab situations. But there are a bunch of other fungi, including Entomophora, that are hard to grow or have, you know, gigantic genomes or complicated life cycles. Cycles that make them particularly challenging to work with, and um, you know, bi- biologists or scientists generally historically, you know, you find something that's um, simple to work with, and it's going to provide you information that you're, you know, interested in acquiring. And so you work with that organism, and a lot of these, you know, have just not been picked up and studied as extensively as they could be. So there's a ton that we don't know. Um, for example, the genome of Entomophora is gigantic for a fungus. It's about 10 times the size of a fly genome. And we have no idea why, when that happened, um, it looks like the other relatives of Entomophora have sustained sort of exploded gigantic genomes, and we have no idea why that is. And that could be interesting to, to study. And um, that's just one of many, many things that we don't understand about um, various types of fungi in the world. So how exactly do you conduct the research on these different types of fungi species? Like, how is the research process done? So it depends on what you want to know. Um, And so your approaches are going to vary pretty substantially depending on sort of what your questions are. Why did you pick the fungus that you're working with? Um, I mean, a lot of the times, the organisms that people work with in the, in the lab are not necessarily because they're interested in that particular organism, but maybe there, you know, is some underlying reason why that organism is a particularly good tool. Maybe it's because, you know, it's a good system to study, um, you know, this particular problem that I'm interested in, so that's why I'm going to work with it, or because it has a particularly, you know, amenable uh, or molecular tools available, so I'm going to you know, use this organism because I'm able to do these manipulations. Uh, so it really depends um, on what your question is. So why haven't we discovered more of these species? Why are we only, like, discovering just a very small amount? Um, they're not obvious. They're small, they're microscopic, um, they're hard to grow, they're, yeah, I mean, they're, a lot of these, are, you know, they're hiding in, in plain sight, but it takes a careful eye and uh, time to, you know, go out and look for all of these things in a systematic way in order to actually, you know, know what's out there. And it's only very recently that we've been able to 
identify uh, microscopic organisms that we can't grow in the lab using um, sequencing technology. So it's only been in the last sort of couple decades that we've really been able to see uh, to learn that you know we're actually surrounded by microbes all the time. Before then, it wasn't clear that that was the case because we couldn't see them and we couldn't grow them. Um, so that's certainly part of it. And then also just, you know, people taking interest in these questions and going out and looking for things. So do you have any encouraging words for young women aspiring for STEM careers? I think everyone should follow their curiosity and do what they're excited about doing. Uh, There's no reason why you can't be an engineer or a scientist or a mathematician. I mean, anyone can step into these shoes and fill this role. When I was uh, younger, I sort of had this idea, and maybe this is something that a lot of people think, um, you know, that a scientist, for example, you know, is a very specific kind of person that has a very specific set of uh, skills and that, you know, I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had those innately that that wasn't something that I could do, but I now, you know, having gone through school, seeing that, you know, really anyone can do anything they want to do. It's just a matter of putting the time and the effort and, um, you know, having a, a good support system, having people that, you know, uh, encourage you and believe in you and you can, you can do whatever you want to do. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you for your time on this podcast and um, just taking the time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I hope I was able to answer your question. Wow, that was certainly an enlightening discussion with Dr. Elia. Quite. Her information about the hijacking... Uh, organisms actually had a different connotation than I thought. I thought it would be more of a invasive kind of species on the flies. In reality, it's more of a control. Yeah, indeed. I thought that this fungi was actually something to be feared, but in reality, she mentioned all the benefits that it could have for humans, like being a natural pesticide, but it would not affect humans whatsoever. It's interesting how climate change can affect so much and how the impacts of this is detrimental to almost every organism on the planet. Indeed. Uh, I also thought her explanation of how the fungus actually impacts the neurological system of the fruit flies was fascinating as well. How, you know, it actually causes them to start climbing upwards was quite interesting. Not to mention the little research that is known yet about the fungi and how much more we have to learn. Yeah, I thought her information about how little we have discovered about this world and how much exploration is needed was quite fascinating because in such a global society and there's so much like, you know, traveling all around the globe. And yet, even though we keep going like throughout the globe, Humans have traveled basically every inch of the globe, and yet, through our travels, we're missing those organisms that are too small for the eye to see, that we overglance. Yeah, especially with such important species that seem to be complete controls over entire organisms and systems and populations around the globe, the fact that we know so little about it makes you wonder how much we still haven't discovered. Yes, 
and also the very fact that climate change is killing off these species, possibly before we even discover them. And these species have such an impact on the ecosystems that they live in that we may not even know the full impact climate change has because if it wipes out a species we don't even know of, we won't be able to predict what the impacts could be. Who knew such a strange topic of hijacking fungi could bring up so many points about where the world can go and what we can learn in the future. Right, and it also questions our perception of different organisms. We assumed when we came into this podcast that this fungus was something to be feared or something that was bad, probably because we've always been trained to be afraid of viruses and bacteria and fungi, but actually it has such an important impact on the ecosystem. Right, when we make full circle that book, The Genius Plague, by David Walton, you know, it portrayed this fungus in a terrible light of being a complete almost alien life form that's taking over the planet when in reality these organisms have to coexist in order for the entire society to function right i believe this shows that even the smallest organisms or what we think organisms are the most nuisance actually have a big impact on our ecosystem And it shows how the smallest things can have the biggest change. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Feel free to listen to other podcast episodes. And thank you for all your support. We'll see you in the next episode. Signing out.